Chapter twenty six of The Masquerader by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter twenty six. The next morning at eight o'clock, and again without breakfast, Loder covered the distance between Grosvenor Square and Clifford's Inn. He left Chilcot's house hastily, with a haste that only an urgent motive could have driven him to adopt. His steps were quick and uneven as he traversed the intervening streets. His shoulders lacked their decisive pose, and his pale face was marked with shadows beneath the eyes. Shadows that bore witness to the sleepless night spent in pacing Chilcot's vast and lonely room. By the curious effect of circumstances, the likeness between the two men had never been more significantly marked than on that morning of April the 19th, when Loder walked along the pavements, crowded with early workers, and brisk with insistent news-vendors, already alive to the value of last night's political crisis. The irony of this last element in the day's concerns came to him fully when one newsboy, more energetic than his fellows, thrust a paper in front of him. "'Sensation in the house, sir. Speech by Mr. Chilcott. Government defeat.' For a moment Loder stopped and his face reddened. The tide of emotion still ran strong. His hand went instinctively to his pocket. Then his lips set. He shook his head and walked on. With the same hard expression about his mouth, he turned into Clifford's Inn, passed through his own doorway, and mounted the stairs. This time there was no milk can on the threshold of his rooms, and the door yielded to his pressure without the need of a key. With a strange sensation of reluctance he walked into the narrow passage and paused, uncertain which room to enter first. As he stood hesitating, a voice from the sitting-room settled the question. "'Who's there?' it called irritably. "'What do you want?' Without further ceremony, the intruder pushed the door open and entered the room. As he did so, he drew a quick breath, whether of disappointment or relief it was impossible to say. Whether he had hoped for or dreaded it, Chilcot was conscious. As Loder entered, he was sitting by the cheerless grate, the ashes of yesterday's fire showing charred and dreary where the sun touched them. His back was to the light, and about his shoulders was an old plaid rug. Behind him on the table stood a cup, a teapot, and the can of milk. Farther off, a kettle was set to boil upon a tiny spirit-stove. In all strong situations we are more or less commonplace. Loder's first remark, as he glanced round the disordered room, seemed strangely inefficient. "'Where's Robbins?' he asked in a brusque voice. His mind teemed with big considerations, yet this was his first involuntary question. Chilcot had started at the entrance of his visitor, now he sat staring at him, his hands holding the arms of his chair. "'Where's Robbins?' Loder asked again. "'I don't know. She, uh, we, we didn't hit it off. She's, she's gone. Went yesterday.' He shivered and drew the rug about him. "'Chilcott!' Loder began sternly. Then he paused. There was something in the other's look and attitude that arrested him. A change of expression passed over his own face. He turned about with an abrupt gesture, pulled off his coat, and threw it on a chair. Then, crossing deliberately to the fireplace, he began to rake the ashes from the grate. Within a few minutes he had a fire crackling where the bed of dead cinders had been, and, having finished the task, he rose slowly from his knees, wiped his hands, and crossed to the table. On the small spirit-stove the kettle had boiled, and the cover was lifting and falling with a tinkling sound. Blowing out the flame, Loder picked up the teapot, and with hands that were evidently accustomed to the task, set about making the tea. During the whole operation he never spoke, 
though all the while he was fully conscious of Chilcot's puzzled gaze. The tea ready, he poured it into the cup and carried it across the room. "'Drink this,' he said laconically. "'The fire will be out presently.' Chilcot extended a cold and shaky hand. "'You see,' he began. But Loder checked him almost savagely. "'I do, as well as though I had followed you from Piccadilly last night. You've been hanging about God knows where till the small hours of the morning.' Then you've come back, slunk back, starving for your damned poison and shivering with cold. You've settled the first part of the business, but the cold is still to be reckoned with. Drink the tea. I've something to say to you. He mastered his vehemence, and, walking to the window, stood looking down into the court. His eyes were blank, his face hard. His ears heard nothing but the faint sound of Chilcot swallowing, the click of the cup against his teeth. For a time that seemed interminable, he stood motionless. Then, when he judged the tea finished, he turned slowly. Chilcot had drawn closer to the fire. He was obviously braced by the warmth, and the apathy that hung about him was to some extent dispelled. Still moving slowly, Loda went towards him, and, relieving him of the empty cup, stood looking down at him. "'Chilcot,' he said, very quietly, "'I've come to tell you—' that the thing must end. After he spoke, there was a prolonged pause. Then, as if shaken with sudden consciousness, Chilcot rose. The rug dropped from one shoulder and hung down ludicrously. His hand caught the back of the chair for support. His unshaven face looked absurd and repulsive in its sudden expression of scared inquiry. Loder involuntarily turned away. "'I mean it,' he said slowly. "'It's over.' We've come to the end. But why? Chilcot articulated blankly. Why? Why? In his confusion he could think of no better word. Because I throw it up. My side of the bargain's off. Again Chilcot's lips parted stammeringly. The apathy caused by physical exhaustion and his recently administered drug was passing from him. The hopelessly shattered condition of mind and body was showing through it like a skeleton through a thin covering of flesh. "'But why?' he said again. "'Why?' Still Loder avoided the frightened surprise of his eyes. "'Because I withdraw,' he answered doggedly. Then suddenly Chilcot's tongue was loosened. "'Loder!' he cried excitedly. "'You can't do it! God, man, you can't do it!' To reassure himself he laughed, a painfully thin echo of his old sarcastic laugh, "'If it's a matter of greater opportunity,' he began, "'of more money.' But Loder turned upon him. "'Be quiet,' he said, so menacingly that the other stopped. Then by an effort he conquered himself. "'It's not a matter of money, Chilcot,' he said, quietly. "'It's a matter of necessity.' He brought the word out with difficulty. Chilcot glanced up. "'Necessity,' he repeated. "'How?' Why? The reiteration roused Loder. Because there was a great scene in the house last night, he began hurriedly, because when you go back you'll find that Sephra has smashed up over the assassination of Sir William Bryce Field at Meshed, and that you've made your mark in a big speech, and because— Abruptly he stopped. The thing he had come to say, the thing he had meant to say, would not be said. Either his tongue or his resolution failed him, and for the instant he stood as silent and almost as ill at ease as his companion. 
and all at once inspiration came to him in the suggestion of a well-nigh forgotten argument by which he might influence Chilcot and save his own self-respect. "'It's all over, Chilcot,' he said more quietly. "'It has run itself out.' And in a dozen sentences he sketched the story of Lillian Astrup, her past relations with himself, her present suspicions. It was not what he meant to say, it was not what he had come to say, but it served the purpose. It saved him humiliation. Chilcot listened to the last word. Then, as the other finished, he dropped nervously back into his chair. "'Good heavens, man!' he said. "'Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you warn me, instead of filling my mind with your political position? Your political position?' He laughed unsteadily. The long spells of indulgence that had weakened his already maimed faculties showed in the laugh, in the sudden breaking of his voice. "'You must do something, Loder,' he added, nervously, checking his amusement. "'You must do something.' Loder looked down at him. "'No,' he said decisively. "'It's your turn now. It's you who've got to do something.' Chilcot's face turned a shade greyer. "'I can't,' he said, below his breath. "'Can't? Oh, yes, you can. We can all do anything. It's not too late. There's just sufficient time.' "'Chilcot,' he added suddenly, "'don't you see that the thing has been madness all along? Has been like playing with the most infernal explosives. You may thank whatever you have faith in that nobody has been smashed up. You are going back. Do you understand me? You are going back, now, today, before it's too late.' There was a great change in Loder. His strong, imperturbable face was stirred. He was moved in both voice and manner. Time after time he repeated his injunction, reasoning, expostulating, insisting. It almost seemed that he had found some strenuous invisible force rather than the shattered man before him. Chilcot moved nervously in his seat. It was the first real clash of personalities. He felt it, recognised it by instinct. The sense of domination had fallen on him, he knew himself impotent in the other's hands. Whatever he might attempt in moments of solitude, he possessed no voice in presence of this invincible second self. For a while he struggled. He did not fight. He struggled to resist. Then, lifting his eyes, he met Loder's. "'And what will you do?' he said weakly. Loder returned his questioning gaze, but almost immediately he turned aside. "'I,' he said, Oh, I shall leave London. End of chapter 26